All right. In our summer series, again, we've entitled it The Creed. We have been considering the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, We're living in an age of biblical illiteracy, doctrinal error. Uh, It is critical that we understand what the Scriptures teach about the faith that has once for all been entrusted to the saints. So we've been considering the great doctrines of the faith, like the doctrine of uh, the Scriptures, the doctrine of God, theology proper, the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the doctrines of sin, doctrines of creation, doctrines of atonement, and how sin is dealt with through the work of Christ. We're looking at the doctrines of the church. We're looking at the doctrines of future events. But today, we're going to be looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. As we begin, we're going to recite the creed as we have done each week together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Again, in theological terms, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is referred to as pneumatology. And uh, this is taken from the Greek word pneuma, which means spirit or breath. And of course, this is a, a key doctrine, one that has been too often neglected. And I've wrestled this week again with my inadequacies in being able to spend one sermon and somehow capture all that we need to say about God's Spirit. But we'll at least get an overview in a big picture. Now, one of the other things we've done each week, again, by, by trying to articulate truth in very concise ways, we've used the catechism. So the New City Catechism that we gave out some copies of today, and I want to look at a couple of questions. I will pose the question, and then we will answer them together. Question 34. Since we are redeemed by grace alone, through Christ alone, must we still do good works and obey God's word? Yes, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his spirit, so that our lives may show love and gratitude to God, so that we may be assured of our faith by the fruits and so that by our godly behaviors, others may be one to Christ. I love that. You don't need to see the answer to know what the answer to that is, right? Did you hear that early response over here? Do we still need to obey? Yes. Question 36. What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? That He is God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, and that God grants him irrevocably to all who believe, permanently. 
irrevocably. He doesn't take him back. Right? That's a really good word. Don't miss that word. Question 37. How does the Holy Spirit help us? The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, comforts us, guides us, gives us spiritual gifts, and the desire to obey God. And he enables us to pray and to understand God's Word. All right, so again, just trying to consider, uh, obviously, the concise statement in the Apostles' Creed, but also some of these just really concise statements in the catechisms that can help uh, us just latch on to core uh, aspects of the Spirit's work. Now, in terms of our approach today, we are going to look broadly at the Spirit. I want to consider the person of the Spirit. I want to consider uh, the, 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 the Holy Spirit as He relates to the triune God, to the other members of the Trinity. Uh, we're going to look at some of the symbols or the images that Scripture gives us about the Spirit to help us understand the nature of His work. And then we'll start moving towards more... Um, Uh, consideration of the Spirit's work now at this particular time in history, and we'll close with a few uh, biblical charges about how we ought to be responding to the Spirit. So we'll get a little more personal, a little more practical as we move here towards the end. But first, the person of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit. This is a a brief statement out of our own doctrinal statement here at FHBC. The Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son and of the same nature. So the Spirit is not simply part of God, like a third of God. Uh, He is God. He is a, a person, not... We think person, we think human. He's not human, but he is a, he is a person, has his own personality. The Spirit was present with God in the beginning and was active in the work of creation. I don't think that was the text, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we have in Genesis 1-2, we're going to look at it in a little bit, we have a statement there about the Spirit's presence there at creation. So like Jesus, the Spirit shares God's DNA. There is a functional subordination within the Godhead. So we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? As Jesus is preparing to go to the cross and he says, if there's any way this cup of suffering can pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Right? That the Son submits himself to the Father, And the Holy Spirit, uh, we're told in John 15, his role, his ministry is not to make much of himself, but he testifies about the Son. He points people and directs people to Jesus. So as we look at how the Father, Son, and Spirit operate, there's a, a certain functional subordination within that relationship. And yet, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are co-equal. They are each Uh, a distinct person in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is not a force or a power, but the third person of the Godhead. 
And I think this is hard for us sometimes because we have a category to think about Jesus as the Son. We, we know what a relationship is between a son and a father. We can, we can envision it. We can get our heads around it. But we don't know how to think about the Spirit. Uh, Abraham Kuyper wrote, We know not what spirits are, nor what our own spirit is. Like, we have a hard enough time understanding our, our own spirit. And how do we get our heads around the Holy Spirit? Uh, God's Spirit. And of course, when we use the King James language of Holy Ghost, we have even bigger problems, don't we? Uh, we think in terms of vagueness and mystery and scariness and surprise. And uh, for these reasons, I believe the Holy Spirit is often the neglected person of the Godhead. Uh, Francis Chan's recent book kind of speaks to this, the title being Forgotten God. So it is uh, necessary for us to give careful consideration to the Holy Spirit. Uh, the presence of the Spirit is an unthinkable gift that ought to be fully appreciated. Uh, notice how Jesus talked about the Spirit. John 16, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus actually tells his disciples, it is better for me to leave you. I'm sure that was unthinkable to, to them. It's unthinkable to us. What could be better than having Jesus with you? But Jesus knew that because he had taken on humanity, he was limited in time and space. He limited in, in space. He couldn't be everywhere at the same time. In his humanity, and so by sending the Spirit, the Spirit would dwell within His people, would be with all of them all the time. So the Spirit is a great gift. The Spirit within us, we might say, is better than Jesus beside us. Remember again the resurrected Jesus in Revelation 1. He's walking about among the lampstands, and uh, we know that the churches are the lampstands. We know at that time that, that lamps didn't have electricity. You didn't just plug them in, right? They were filled with oil, and you had to fill them with oil to keep them burning brightly. So here's Jesus. John sees Jesus uh, walking among the lampstands, tending the lampstands, pouring oil into the lampstands. I would suggest he's Pouring out his spirit into the lampstands. The spirit is often aligned with oil. So the spirit represents God's presence, Jesus' presence uh, with us. Here in Luke 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Again, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, we know that dads like to give good gifts to their children. How much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? The best gift. Uh, this, again, frames the Spirit in a certain way as the, the greatest expression of God's love to us. And, of course, Jesus also talked in Luke 12, everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Everyone who says something against me will be forgiven, Jesus said. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. It's often referred to as the unforgivable sin, unpardonable sin. And Jesus makes no 
pulls no punches here when he talks about the significance of the Spirit's presence in the life of the believer. So we get a sense of the person, the value, the nature of the Holy Spirit, his, his nature as God, as, as, a, as a person with distinct personality, but also of his great value, the gift that he is to the church. Now the role of the Holy Spirit within the triune God. Again, how do we think about the Spirit's role? We've said that each person of the Godhead is co-equal, co-eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each fully God, but they're not identical in their activities. Each person in the Godhead has a role in carrying out the work of redemption. The Father planned and purposed redemption. He put it in place before the creation of the world. Uh, The Son has accomplished the work of redemption, right? In real time, took on humanity entered into time and space, died on a cross for our sin, the Spirit applies the work of redemption. This, again, is what we articulate in our doctrinal statement about the Spirit. His role, the Spirit's role, is to apply the work of redemption and bring glory to the Father. So Jesus accomplishes this great work, but the Spirit, by, by God's grace, the Spirit comes and brings me under conviction and stirs my heart and makes me realize, opens my eyes to the, my, my need of salvation. Uh, the Spirit then does a work of regeneration, of making me alive spiritually. And the Spirit confirms my salvation and secures my salvation. All of this the Spirit does, applying the work of redemption that the Father had planned and the Son had accomplished. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. It speaks of wind or breath, energy and activity. It speaks not just of someone who is invisible, but someone who is powerful. I, uh, I came in pretty early this morning, but I'm assuming that when you came in, you saw what I saw. A bunch of branches and leaves and a couple big trees down in our neighborhood uh, blocking parts of the, the roads. Uh, that was wind, my friends. Just a little wind, but God's wind. Uh, the, the, the type of wind that can reach tornado force. Uh, this is the powerful manifestation of God. Ruach. One commentator, Sinclair Ferguson, says, Ruach, this idea of, of breath or wind, uh, Ruach, the Spirit, is the blast of God, the irresistible power by which he accomplishes his purposes, whether creative or destruction. The Spirit is God at work in the world, (laughs) exerting his power. Let me just trace it through for you briefly in the text of Scripture. God created matter, and then we find the Spirit hovering or fluttering over the empty and unformed creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God spoke matter into existence. The earth was without form and void. It didn't have any shape yet. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The wind was swirling. (laughs) Right? Matter of fact, some of the language here is used in ancient literature to describe a bird that is brooding over uh, her nest. Something active is happening here. Something is being shaped and formed by the Spirit of God. 
Now here in Isaiah, we read that the Spirit was active in the Exodus. We don't read about this overtly in the text, uh, but when Moses led the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt, right, God, God, God led his people out. He heard their cries, brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea. Now this is how this is described by the prophet Isaiah. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go out at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Again, it's the Spirit who, God purposes the great work of redemption, but it's the Spirit who applies it. In some sense, when Moses lifted up his staff, extended his staff, it was the spirit that, that, that was in operation to hold back the waters of the Red Sea, right? It was the spirit who carried along the prophets to write scripture. It was the spirit that came upon King David, empowering him to bring great victory over the Philistines. Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. So there was actual oil that happened, but notice what that oil symbolized. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Again, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God caused, he moved people <laughs> To, to write God's words. Uh, this is the active work of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that formed the physical life of Jesus in Mary's womb, right? Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus performed his miracles in the power of the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism in the form of a dove, just as it had descended earlier on King David, right? And Jesus performed, he didn't perform any miracles before his baptism, before the coming of the Spirit. He performed his miracles in the power of the Spirit. It was the Spirit who raised Jesus from the grave. It was the Holy Spirit who descended in flames of fire at Pentecost, and formed the church. The Holy Spirit that filled or empowered the church to speak boldly for Christ. The Spirit carried out the creation of the universe, and the Spirit is the one who is now carrying out the recreation of the universe. He's the one bringing life into dead hearts, right? We also can consider the symbols of the Holy Spirit. Now, the scriptures cause us to think about the Spirit in certain ways, with certain metaphors, with certain images. Um, I'm going to go off the rails here a little bit. This is always dangerous. When I was a kid, the Wonder Twins were a superhero duer, duel, duo. I shouldn't have gone off the cuff here. Uh, they were aliens from the planet Exor with shape-shifting abilities. They could put their hands together and say, I don't feel as old now because some of you are old with me. Wonder twin powers activate, and the brother and sister could then take on other forms. Uh, I didn't know their names, but apparently the, the guy was Zan, and he would take on the form of water, and Zana, the form of an animal. And the point is that they could get into places and do things that normal humans couldn't. 
Now, the reason I say this is dangerous, we should never try to use images to describe God. We certainly shouldn't use an image like that to describe the triune God. God doesn't just take on various forms, always takes the form of the Son and the form of the Father and the form of the Spirit. That's not what we're talking about. My, my point is simply to say that the Holy Spirit is not confined by a human body. Jesus has taken on humanity. He was raised in humanity bodily from the grave. He ascended back to heaven with a human body. He has united himself to humanity. The Spirit has not. And so the Spirit is able to do things and act in ways as a person not just as a force or a force field, as a person, but he is able to do things that a person, a human person, is not able, able to, to, to act. So uh, I say all that. Uh, he descends like a dove. This could be, again, an echo of the Spirit's work in creation. Jesus was baptized. Immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were open to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So again, an echo of the Spirit's work in creation, hovering over the waters, right? Uh, bringing shape. Maybe this is the Spirit now engaged, coming down and hovering over a new work of creation, of recreation. Uh, he secures like a seal, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealing in the ancient world denotes security, ownership, permanence. Correspondence would be stamped in the wax with the king's seal. Cattle would be branded with an indelible mark. Today we have notary documents, right, that bear a government seal and reflect seriousness and permanence. You can't simply escape that contract or that reality that's on that paper. That is the Spirit's role in our lives. He guarantees like a deposit. This goes on here in Ephesians 1. Who is, the Spirit is, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I put down some earnest money this week. Uh, It wasn't much, but you don't do it lightly, do you? Because you don't get it back. Stop and consider the earnest money that God has put down on our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee that all that God has promised will come to pass. That he will be be good on on his promises. He anoints like oil. I told you that the oil is often symbol, symbolic of the Spirit. Here we read about Jesus, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now we looked at David, right? David was anointed with oil. The Spirit rushed upon him. Here there's no oil. <laughs> the anointing was the Holy Spirit, <laughs> He was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and and God was with him. God was empowering him. God's Spirit was empowering him. He purifies like fire. Again, the day of Pentecost, tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Um, Remember that that he is the Holy Spirit. He, He is 
uh, leading us in holiness and righteousness. He is, uh, there's a, 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 the Spirit works to sanctify, to cleanse. He convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And fire certainly conjures all of those purifying imageries. He moves like the wind. He's powerful. He's not to be controlled or manipulated. Uh, the point there in John 3, in this text, is that Jesus is not a genie in a bottle. Uh, the Spirit is not a genie in a bottle. They're to be controlled by you. He is like the, the wind, powerful. He refreshes like water. This is a great scene in John 7, the Feast of Booths. This is uh, Jesus came to Jerusalem for the celebration of this feast. This was the feast where they would set up the little tents and everybody would live in tents for a week. And they were to remember that they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And there was a ceremony in the temple courts where they would pour out the water in the temple courts, big, vast quantities of water. And it was to be a reminder of how God brought water out of the rock to satisfy a thirsty people. And the Spirit is that water that God is bringing out of the rock to a weary, thirsty people to refresh us. So wonderful images, and that's just scratching the surface. I'm actually going to, uh, I'm going to skip ahead. This is going to drive some of you crazy because we're going to skip some blanks. John 14 to 16 uh, is where Jesus really addresses what is it with his disciples what the Spirit is going to be doing among his people. So this gets into sort of the present work of the Spirit. And I'll just give you the three blanks. The Spirit abides. He is with us. There's an enduring quality to the Spirit's work. Jesus tells them, He has been with you. The Spirit has been operative, but now He will be in you. So the Spirit abides. One of the wonderful aspects of the Spirit's work. The Spirit teaches. Uh, John 14, 26. The Spirit will teach them all things. And it's not so much that the Spirit is going to give you new truth. The text here is very explicit that He will bring to your remembrance all that I, Jesus, have said to you. He's going to help you remember my truth, my commands. So the Spirit works to direct our attention to the teachings of Jesus. He brings to our mind the truth of God's Word. And the Spirit testifies. Uh, this is a hugely encouraging doctrine. Uh, he says here in John 15, again in this upper room discourse, uh, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So we know Jesus was going to send out the disciples. They had been eyewitnesses of his ministry. They had seen his miracles. They had heard his teaching. And they were being now sent out to bear witness to what Jesus had said and done to tell the world. But isn't it interesting, before the disciples were even going out to bear witness, the Holy Spirit was going out to bear witness. The Holy Spirit had been with Jesus the entire time of his ministry. He had a front row seat. So what we're telling people with words, the Spirit is actually communicating at the level of the heart, convicting them of sin, 
and bringing to bear the truth of who Jesus is, bearing witness. Uh, So this is legal terminology, courtroom terminology, truth-telling terminology, and uh, we are not alone as we bear witness. The Spirit is active in bearing witness within the human heart, and I find that to be greatly encouraging. Well, finally, the response uh, to the Holy Spirit. There are a number of overt imperative commands that were given related to the Spirit, and I think this would be uh, kind of the, the application section for us here today. Again, be filled with the Spirit. Um, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So this idea of filling has to do with control. Uh, we said that the Spirit's presence is an abiding presence. The Spirit seals the believer. The Spirit is the down payment of the believer's salvation. So the Spirit doesn't come and go in terms of his presence. But uh, we do not always avail ourselves of his power. (laughs) There's an active role that we have to take of allowing him to control us, to direct us, allow his power to work through us. The imagery here, of course, of alcohol, something that we allow into our bodies, and if uh, we do it to excess, that results in drunkenness, right? That leads to a loss of control. We're controlled by the alcohol. He's saying, uh, I want you to allow God's Spirit to have free reign in your life. Be controlled by His Spirit, right? Again, notice, we don't fill ourselves with the Spirit. The Spirit is not a commodity that we just take and use, It's a passive voice. We are to be filled, to allow ourselves to be filled or controlled with the Spirit. That ought to be one of our our responses, a yieldedness. Presenting ourselves as an open vessel for God to use as He would by His Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16. We are to keep in step with or remain in sync with the Spirit. Uh, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you were to read on in Galatians 5, you would read about the works of the flesh. Paul creates a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. So we know exactly what Paul's talking about. The work of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, and again, contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So to walk or to keep in step with the Spirit is to, to pursue these qualities, not these qualities. Do not grieve the Spirit. Here again, we see the person of the Spirit. He can be grieved over sin. And again, Paul goes on to talk about the attitudes and behaviors that that grieve the Spirit. Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. We're called to be people of kindness, forgiveness, tenderness. And then finally, do not quench the Spirit. This, again, speaks to the Spirit's role as fire, right? Purifying fire. Do not quench. Do not put out the Spirit's flame. And specifically in this context, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. 
So when God's word is proclaimed, that's what prophecy really is. It's a bold declaration of God's truth. When you encounter God's truth, don't ignore it. Don't shake your fist at it. Don't think, oh, maybe I'll do something about that tomorrow. Don't pour fire, pour water on the Spirit's fire. Respond when the Spirit is working and convicting you uh, in certain ways.